Have you heard about the nuns? I'm not talking about the women who make vows to a religious order. I'm talking about the people who, when surveyed on the question of what religion they practice, identify as atheist, agnostic, or simply nothing in particular. Those are the nuns. One of the fastest growing segments of the American religious scene. Over the past decade, as Roman Catholics have seen a slow decline in their membership and Protestants have experienced a more precipitous drop, the nuns, meanwhile, are on the rise. In the most recent Pew Research survey conducted just last year, the nuns accounted for 26%, one quarter of adults in the U.S., while 63% identify as either Catholic or Protestant. That's a drop from 75% of adults in 2007 who identified as Catholic or Protestant, with the nuns making up just 16% at that time. Today they are 26% and are increasing. And as you might expect, when that population gets segmented by generation, uh, the younger you are, uh, the more likely you are to be counted among the nuns. In fact, 36% of millennials, my generation, are religiously unaffiliated. We grew up inside the religion of our parents, and then when we reached adulthood, we promptly left it, or most of us have, anyway. Now, I bet you're thinking, well, that's terrible news. Maybe. Maybe it is. As someone who has affiliated with the capital I institutional church myself, uh, and whose livelihood depends on it, I probably have a right to worry. Uh, no one wants to dwell on such trends, dismal as they sound, what they mean for our churches in the next decade or two what they would mean for St. Paul's. But rather than wringing our hands over silver bullet solutions or playing the generation blame game, that's so fun to play, um, allow me to suggest an alternative. Perhaps the rise of the nuns should be an opportunity for the church to do some soul searching. It's obvious that the church has failed to make a case for its continued relevance. Now, I'm not a social scientist, so I can't give you any hard data on why exactly the nuns are on the rise, and I'm sure there are a variety of factors at play, but all the same, I have a hunch about what's behind it all. It's a theological hunch. Rather than preaching the gospel in all its fullness, in all its depth and rigor, we have opted for a feel-good, milk-toast gospel that gives nothing, that costs nothing, a gospel that means nothing. And a gospel that means nothing will not make disciples. Because if church is nothing more than validating everything that I already do so that I can live my life as I please, well then thanks but no thanks. It's just not worth our time. We may as well just stay home 
and sleep in on Sunday morning. But the gospel of Jesus is not a feel-good gospel that asks nothing of us. On the contrary, it asks everything. No aspect of our lives gets exempt from its scope. It doesn't leave us where we are, but it calls us toward a higher life than the one we are presently living. That's the nature of the gospel that Jesus is preaching in Matthew chapter 5, in his Sermon on the Mount, a portion of which we heard this morning. In each of the four statements that we hear, Jesus repeats the phrase, You have heard it said, but I say to you. He does so in order to drive home his teaching and to take his listeners far deeper into the law of God than they had ever been willing to go. As a Jew, preaching to fellow Jews, Jesus understood that observance of the Torah, the law, was paramount. It was everything. Just before the verses we heard today, Jesus says that he has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But just when his audience thought that they knew what it meant to observe the law, Jesus comes and he ups the ante. You think you've kept the law that says do not murder simply because you haven't murdered anyone? Think again, says Jesus. Murder isn't limited to outward action, but finds its origin within the heart. Likewise with adultery. Do you think, asked Jesus, that just because you have not touched another person, you have kept this commandment, even with all the lust that resides within your heart? Think again. What about the swearing of oaths? Do you think, asked Jesus, that simply swearing an oath makes you a truthful person, even with all the duplicity, the prevarication lodged deep within your heart? Think again. In his sermon, Jesus shows us just how deep the law goes so that we would know the depth from which we need to be saved. It turns out that I'm breaking all of the commandments all the time, even when I think that I'm keeping them. And what extraordinary lengths do we go to justify our actions? And, and this is where Jesus' teaching on divorce is key. Um, while on the surface, it seems that Jesus is simply teaching that divorce is wrong or, or is only permissible in certain circumstances, in reality, there's something deeper going on here. In Jesus' day, a man could divorce his wife simply by presenting her with a certificate. But the economic, the physical, the psychological upheaval that she would experience as a result it would have been disastrous. For those men who would justify such harm by appealing to the law, Jesus says, no. No, you cannot keep the law by pushing another person into harm's way or pushing another person into sin. The law, the law goes far deeper than that. It goes into the depths 
of the human heart. But the most striking part of today's gospel, at least for me, is the way that Jesus commands us to respond to temptation, as if through an act of physical violence. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. If, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. I mean, for starters, these verses prove that no one is actually a biblical literalist, right? I mean, do you see any, do you see people with their eyes gouged out and, and no right hand? I mean, I mean that's, it's not a thing because no reader of the Bible is doing that. Just, just because Jesus is using hyperbole to drive home his point, it does not mean that he's not deadly serious. Sin doesn't begin with action. It begins with intention, residing in the heart. Adultery doesn't just happen without context, as if there weren't hundreds, even thousands of thoughts, words that, that precede it. Those moments are, are the things that need to be cut off at the root with a violent, a violent action before they have a chance to grow and to take root. The law goes so much deeper than we can see. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't preach that we should just be ourselves or live our truth. Instead, he calls us to be salt and light, and he shows us the kind of life that salt and light are made of. In showing us the depth, the full depth of the law, Jesus shows us the depth of our need. For we are sinners, even when we think that we aren't, even when we're convinced that, that we're right in all that we do. As we listen to Jesus' sermon and follow in his way, let us remember, we don't do it, we don't live it of our own strength. We cannot be more loving, more kind, less lustful, less hateful, less duplicitous by our own strength. We can only be those things by the strength and the mercy of God. Because in our weakness, we can do nothing good without the power of Christ within us. As we heard in our reading from the letter to the Corinthians, it is God who gives the growth. And it's Christ who makes us whole. He does not leave us to our own devices, but leads us on toward a higher life in him. And if that gospel message is compelling to us in any way, and something tells me it will also be compelling to the world. And maybe, just maybe, it's even compelling enough to keep us from joining the ranks of the nuns. Amen.